You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 13, and let's bow together before we begin. Our Father, we are so thankful for your word, which is to us a rock. It is a clear and compelling revelation of who you are and how we can come to know you through Jesus Christ, whom you have sent for our sake and for your glory's sake. And so we thank you that you have communicated to us all that is necessary for life and for godliness. And it is the joy of the child of God to to bow our knees before your word and to to acknowledge its superiority over us and its right to command us and to uh, to demand things of us. And so we pray that we might gladly receive those commands and instructions from your word and that you would send your spirit to be our comforter, our guide, and our instructor here today in your word, that you might be glorified in and through your church. That is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you will probably notice and maybe even be relieved to notice that there's no wash basin up here with a towel and a chair for a foot washing service, as I hinted at last time we were together, which was two weeks ago. Um, I was delighted to hear some of the experiences that some folks shared after the last time we were in John 13, talking about the foot washing, of your own foot washing experiences. And I'm not going to give any names, but I want to give a, a just a couple of observations and relate a couple of stories. Uh, one person shared that they had been in an Adventist church where foot washing was a regular occurrence, and that the, in the Adventist church, they do foot washing connected with every communion. So they have a communion service or observe the Lord's Supper, and, and then they go into separate rooms and have a foot washing ceremonies. And I can somewhat see the justification for that and the connection since the foot washing and the institution of the Lord's Supper happened on the same evening at the same meal, maybe even only minutes apart from each other. Uh, somebody else shared that in a church where they uh, attended down south, that it was something that they regularly did. In a, in a southern church, and that it was a delightful experience and a, a very impactful and emotional experience. Uh, somebody else shared, a third person shared, that they had attended a men's retreat where they had a foot washing service there as part of the men's retreat, and that it was, uh, how, how did he say it, awkward and a bit creepy, I think were the words that he used. <laughs> now, if I, were to, if I were to be forced to pick where I would be at on that spectrum, I would have to admit that I am in the latter camp. It would be a bit awkward and a bit creepy for me. But I am willing to also admit that part of my reaction to the idea of a foot washing ceremony, part of that I know is cultural. I know it is because I've grown up in a church where that has not been done and it is not part of our normal worship practice. And so to institute it or to, to have it as part of a service would be a bit awkward and a bit creepy. Now, it's not because, I don't think it's because, I have anything against doing that for somebody. I have a friend who cannot walk without crutches. Many of you know who I'm talking about. When he rides in my truck, I have to lift him up into my truck by his legs and put his feet where they need to be. And I have to deal with his crutches and take them out. He's been in my home, and there have been occasions when I have put his shoes on him and tied his shoes for him because he's not able to do that with his own hands, at least in any timely fashion. And when doing that, I, that's not awkward for me. It's not, it's not creepy to me to do something like that for somebody that doesn't, that doesn't weird me out. I don't think anything of it. In fact, if he said to me, Jim, while you're down there, would you mind taking my socks off and washing my feet? It's been a while. They're dirty. They're sweaty. They're stinky. Would you mind doing that? I'd probably do it, not think anything of it, not even tell you about it. And 
I don't say that because I want you to think, oh, look at Jim, he's such a servant-hearted guy. That's not the ca- that's not the case at all. It's just that's not demeaning to me. That's not humiliating work to me. There are a lot of far more lowly and demeaning things that I could be asked to do rather than to wash a friend's feet. But to plan a service where we all get together and we show each other how much we love each other and we show how humble we are by doing something that we wouldn't do for one another in the normal course of our lives together or our fellowship together, that is where it becomes awkward to me. I'm not convinced that that reenacting the foot washing is what Jesus intended in John chapter 13. I'm not convinced of that. Now, the reason I bring this up is because last week I talked about the foot washing. Last week we looked at verses 5 through 11 at the actual incident itself, and I wanted that to be in your mind. Is this foot washing something that we as Christians are called to to replicate and to imitate and to do to one another as something that we actually literally do, get together and wash one another's feet as a, as a course of showing each other our love and our humility. And today I'm going to answer that question with some, I'm going to answer that question and give you some reasons why I come up with the answer that I have. Now you already can guess the answer that I have because it's not my first time to the rodeo. It's not the first time I've read John 13 and we've never had a foot washing service in this church. But I'll give you my answer and the reasons for it a little bit later. We've already looked at Jesus's uh, washing the disciples' feet at his last supper with the disciples on the night prior to his crucifixion in John chapter 13. We saw some of the lessons that Jesus sort of uh, ties into that event. Uh, one of them had to do, the main lesson that Jesus made there, or at least the main spiritual symbolism, I should say, not the main lesson, but the main spiritual symbolism that Jesus pointed to was our own need for cleansing and washing. The washing of the disciples' feet pointed forward in a very symbolic way, to something much greater than the actual washing of the feet. And that was to the cross. It's no accident that the evening of the Last Supper, before Jesus was with the disciples, the evening that evening before He was crucified, it's no coincidence that beginning that evening, there was this act of great humiliation and condescension and service. And Jesus Himself draws the spiritual parallel. You must be clean, He said to Peter. If you are not clean, that is, if you have not had your sins forgiven, and you have not been regenerated, you've not been justified and born again, if you have not been wiped clean by the blood of the Lamb, then you have no part with Christ. There was a second element tied in with the foot washing. With that being wiped clean initially, there is, of course, over the course of the Christian life, a need to be continually cleansed from the sin that sort of attaches itself and that we walk through in the midst of our conversation in our lives in this fallen world. And so having been cleansed, we don't need to be regenerated, re-renewed, reborn again every time we sin. We just need to be cleaned up a bit. We need to have our sins forgiven. We need to be sanctified. We need to confess our sins. Understanding that in the cross, Jesus is the one who provides for the grace necessary for the initial cleansing, as well as every continual act of forgiveness and cleansing and restoration of fellowship that we will need throughout the rest of our Christian lives until We go to glory to be with the Lord. Now that's the symbolism that Jesus tied in there, showing us that this act of foot washing was in itself a picture of a much greater cleansing and a much greater act of grace, uh, which the cross itself would secure. Now there is a second lesson to be learned from the foot washing, and this is where we begin, verse 12, where Jesus begins to teach one of the things that he wanted the disciples to really learn from his act of washing their feet. So picking up in verse 12, So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? 
Now, this sort of wraps up the events that unfold in verses 5 through 11. We saw that Jesus got up, took off his outer garments, got a water basin and a towel, washed the disciples' feet, dried them. When he was all done, he reversed the action. He took his outer garments, sat down and reclined at the table again. And then he said to the disciples, do you know what it is that I have done to you? Now, I can imagine as Jesus sat down back at the table with those 12 disciples that are there. Remember, Judas is there and got his feet washed too. So when Jesus sat down, back down with the disciples, I doubt that there was any lighthearted banter going on. Remember, they had been discussing which one of them was the greatest amongst them. Which one of them was going to have the highest seat in the kingdom when Jesus inaugurated it. And Jesus reproved their pride and their self-seeking ambitions and desires by humbling himself and serving them and washing their feet. Taking the lowliest position as a slave and serving them in that way. So if you had had your pride and your self-seeking motives, and you had been discussing which one of us was the greatest that night when the Lord Jesus took up the towel and began to wash the disciples' feet, do you think that when he was done that there would have been any lighthearted banter going on? I think all twelve of those men sat there in stunned silence, hardly a word falling from their lips. When Jesus said to them in verse 12, Do you know what I have done to you? Now the word know there is uh, an interrogative, which means it's a question, and it's probably how it's translated in your Bible. Leon Morris uh, points out in his commentary that that word can be an, an interrogative or an imperative, meaning a command. Now, it's commonly taken as a question, do you know what I've done to you? But it can also be taken as uh, an imperative, a command. Now, keep it, you say, how can you, how can you mix up a question and a command? Well, in the Greek language, there's no punctuation. There's no periods, colons, semicolons, uh, commas, or question marks. So the way you tell whether something is a question or a command is you look at the word and you look at the ending of the word. And sometimes one ending can be either a question or it can be a command. And so it's very possible that what Jesus is saying here is not, do you understand what I have done, but that he is commanding them, understand what I have done to you. He's not asking them, do you get it? He's saying, I want you to make sure that you get it. Understand what the significance is of what I have just done to you. He's not asking him, do you know it? He's saying, know it. So it might be that that's the sense in which Jesus means that. Do you understand what I have done to you? And then he goes on to give the lesson that he wants them to learn, beginning in verse 13. Now, verses 13 through 16, and by the way, we're not going to get all the way to verse 20. We're going to do 13 through 17 this morning, and we'll pick it up next week by sort of introducing and going into that next that last section, uh, 18 through 20. Beginning in verse 13, Jesus begins to use a series of words all of which indicate two things, our role and our responsibility. Look at the series of words, beginning in verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. For truly I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. And the word one who is sent there, literally means an apost- it's the word apostolos, or a sent one in the Greek. It's one who is sent or commissioned on a task. So look at that series of words. Teacher, Lord, Lord, teacher, slave, master, one who is sent, one who sends him. All of those words, all of those titles that Jesus used are intended to communicate something of the roles that we fill and the responsibilities that we have. Let's just take a couple of them. Teacher and Lord. Teacher was probably the word that the disciples most often used of Jesus, calling him Rabboni or teacher. They viewed themselves as his disciples or his learners, the ones who learned from him. He was their rabbi. He was their teacher. They followed him. They learned from him. And most often they called him teacher. And we see that often in the Gospel of John even. 
The word Lord, Kyrios, it can be a title that is used of somebody that doesn't communicate deity. It can be used to just communicate the idea of somebody who is in a, a lofted or exalted position, but not having any overtones of, of godness or deity to it. But in John's Gospel, it's more likely that that's not how it is used here. It's probably used here with overtones of deity. The disciples had come to understand that He is the I Am, which is why later on, in verse 13, Jesus says, You call Me Teacher and Lord, and you're right, for I Am. And that's He uses that divine title, the Ego I Me, the I Am, that He used in John chapter 8. He used it so repeatedly of Himself all the way through John's Gospel The disciples by this point are coming to understand he's not merely a teacher. This is not merely a good rabbi. This man raises the dead. This man claims to be the channel through which people receive eternal life. This man is the son of the living God. They've come to this understanding. And so they had begun, they had called him teacher. They had also called him Lord. But by now, the idea of calling him Lord is taking on the overtones of deity. He is also the one who sends and we are the ones who are sent. Now all of those titles, teacher, Lord, the one, the master, which is also the word kyrios, and the one who sent, all of those communicate something of our responsibility before him. If he is the master, if he is the teacher, then what are, what are we? If he is the teacher, then what are we? We are the students. We are the learners, right? So that means that we learn from him. So already in that language, teacher and student, we get some idea of who is in charge, who the great one is, and who the lesser one is. How about the word master or Lord? When we call Him our Master and our Lord, what does that communicate about who we are? We are the what? We are the servants. We are the slaves. We are the douloi. We're the bondservants and the slaves. And part of part of understanding our role in the Christian life is to understand that we take upon ourselves His yoke and His burden. It's light. It is joyful. And it is our delight to serve such a, a gracious and glorious Master and King. Because His burden is light. But when we sing about Him being the Lord, we recognize that He is the Lord, and we call Him the Lord Jesus, we are saying something in that phrase that admits that we are the lesser ones. We are the slaves. And that is what salvation is, by the way. Salvation is not coming to Jesus and saying, I need fire insurance to get me through so that I can go to heaven when I die. Salvation is laying down my arms and ceasing my rebellion against such a great and gracious King. And it is turning from that rebellion, from my idols, to serve the living and the true God. It is bowing the knee to Him and recognizing that He is the Kyrios, He is the Lord, and that I am the slave. That's what salvation is. So those titles, sent one, and sender, and master, and slave, and Lord, and teacher, those all communicate something of our role. So we're getting the idea, this is, a, this is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If the greater one did this, then how much more should the lesser one do this? If the greater one condescended, if the greater one humbled himself, then how much more incumbent is it upon the lesser one to follow in the footsteps of the Master and do as the Master did? Now, there are a couple of implications from this, and let me just give you three of them real quick. If we affirm that these are indeed realities, if we confess Him as Lord and call Him Lord, Lord, then Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? If we say that He is the Lord, then it is incumbent upon us to bow the knee and to obey Him. Obedience, therefore, is not an optional add-on to the Christian life. I'm going to get saved, and then I will choose whether or not I'm going to obey Him. You can't even begin your Christian walk without the act of obeying Him by laying down your arms 
and turning from your idols to serve the living and true God through repentance and in faith. You cannot even begin your Christian life without an act of obedience. So the Christian life begins by an act of obedience and it continues in one obedience after another to this sovereign and exalted King, this gracious King. So if we confess these things with our mouths, then it is incumbent upon us that we do as He did and we obey Him. Second, this this governing principle must dominate our mindset that we are slaves. That we are slaves. That we are the douloi and that He is the Master. In fact, the most exalted people, the most advanced servants in the kingdom of Christ are the ones who think of themselves as slaves and act as slaves and view everything around them and everything that they do and everything that happens to them from the paradigm of, I am a slave. So if I am a slave and my master chooses to take something from me, even if it is something as dear as my wife or my child or my house or my car or my job, is that not his prerogative? It is his prerogative. So every loss that I endure must be viewed in terms of he is the curios and I am the slave. Likewise, every act of service and every act of obedience must be seen in that paradigm. That he is the curios and I am the slave. He is the Lord. He is the master. I have no right to anything. And part of the struggle of living as a Christian is to live in terms of understanding everything in my life that I have no right to anything. That is so difficult, isn't it? When we live in a country that is focused on what? Rights. And having those rights either secured or taken away from us. Too often we tend to think, I have a right to this, I have a right to that, and I have a right to the other thing. And in reality, if he is the master and I am the slave, I have a right to nothing. So anything that my master gives to me is entirely by grace. And so I really can't claim anything. And of course the reward is that he will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the, of the Lord, the jo- your joy of the Lord. And that will be a great, great reward. So I, I have to view everything in terms of, I am a slave and he is the curious. That's a hard sell, isn't it? Especially in Christianity. You, you come up to somebody, imagine this in the first century, and it's the same today. Imagine this, you walk up to somebody and say, you know what, Christianity is slavery. That's what it is. So you want eternal life? You must become the slave of a Jew from Nazareth. You understand why the world thinks that's foolishness? Of course the world thinks that's foolishness. But that's what the gospel is. You're going to become a slave of a Jew from Nazareth who claimed to be God, died, and rose again before witnesses. That is what Christianity is. That's a hard sell, and that's a hard life to live. But we are indeed the slaves. The third implication is that if the foot washing was not below the master, then it can never be below me, right? The Lord Jesus washing the disciples' feet was a greater act of condescension and humiliation and lowliness than anything I could ever do. There is no act of humiliation that I could ever perform in all of my life that would even approximate the act of humiliation of the Lord Jesus stepping down from glory and taking a human body and coming in the likeness of men and coming to serve, not to be served, but to serve and then to give His life as a ransom for many. I can never even begin to approximate that degree of humility. All I can do is imitate it. All I can do is do as he did and try and do like he did, but I, I can never match that. Nobody ever could. I was, I was blessed when I went to Bible college. There were, there were a number of older staff members there. Some students didn't like the older staff members. I, I love, love the older staff members. I've always loved old people. Even when I was a young person, I loved old people. 
I think they're great. I think gray hair is a great thing. Um, just not on my head. But there were four older staff members there. Mr. Hogman, Mr. McNee, many of you know Mr. McNee, Mr. Peeler, and Mr. Pollard. Those were the four oldest staff members there. They were great teachers, men of great intellect. And I always admired them for their intellect, for their teaching ability, for their uh, intellectual prowess. These are men with honorary degrees from Bible colleges and seminaries. Uh, they were great men. New languages that I can't even pronounce. Great men. It was not uncommon in walking around the Bible college to see one of those men, to stumble into a room and see them wiping a table, cooking a meal, cleaning a bathroom, doing something that nobody would see, painting a wall, doing those things. When I was in Bible college, I thought that those men were great in the kingdom because of what they knew, and because of how they taught, and because of their intellectual capabilities. You know what I later came to realize? Those men are not great in the kingdom because of their office, but because of their service. Those men are great men in the kingdom because of what they do, not just because of their intellectual abilities. Now I appreciate those men as I recognize that greatness in the kingdom is not a matter of having an office. It is the matter of doing a service. The world thinks this way. The world says as you go, as you advance in the kingdom, you get greater and greater offices and accolades and honors, and you have more and more people below you to serve you. That's how the world functions. But the kingdom of Christ is the polar opposite. In the kingdom of Christ, greatness is not a matter of that office. And it's not a matter of having people serve you. It's a matter of you serving other people. And the struggle of the Christian life is to bring my arrogance and my pride and, and my, my self-seeking motives, and all of us have them, into line with the example that we have here in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's our role. Now what is our responsibility? Look at verse 14. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now the word ought there in your English translation, is a word that speaks of a solemn duty. It is an obligation and a solemn obligation. And notice again the argument from of the greater to the lesser. If the Lord does this, then you, and who is the you? It's the douloi, the servants, the slaves. If the Lord does this, then the slaves ought also to do this. You ought to wash, wash one another's feet. Verse 15, for I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Now that brings us to the question that I started with two weeks ago, and now we finally get to the answer. Is then this act of foot washing something that we should be doing as a rite or as an ordinance in the church? Should we have foot washing services? Now I'm going to give you my answer. My answer is no. Now I'm going to give you my qualifications. By saying no, I do not mean that any church or organization or men's retreat or whatever that has a foot washing service is inherently sinning or that it's sinful or that it's wrong or anything like that. That's not what I'm suggesting. A foot washing service done at a wedding or done as part of a, a men's retreat or something like that can be entirely fine. There's nothing sinful in it in and of itself. But by not washing one another's feet literally... I don't think that we're sinning, nor are we disobeying the command of the Lord here when He says to do it. So, it's not that it's sinful, it's just that I am in no way compelled to make this a normal part of our worship service for the following reasons. Let me give you a couple of reasons. Oh, first of all, uh, William Hendrickson in his commentary on John offers a little historical note that talks about the different groups that have practiced foot washing as part of their worship services. 
Here's what Hendrickson writes. Foot washing was practiced on Maundy Thursday by the Church of Augustine's Day. It was recommended by Bernard of Clairvaux in one of his sermons. The practice, moreover, was continued by the Pope at Rome and by emperors and kings. For a while it was practiced by the Church of England and by the Moravians. It has been continued to this very day by certain Baptist and Adventist bodies. It was roundly condemned by Luther and by his followers as, quote, an abominable papal corruption, end quote. Now, that's typical Luther, right? If you can, if you can, if you can scourge somebody, Luther would do it. That's what I loved about Luther. Say it as it is. An abominable papal corruption. Now keep in mind that what Luther was observing was the Pope coming out about once a year and selecting a few of the worst poor people in the city and then washing their feet in an ostentatious public display of his humility and his willingness to serve them. When 364 days out of the year, the Pope never did any such thing and lived in decadence and opulence beyond the imagination of most common people of their day. So what Luther observed was that, and he identified that as a papal corruption, meaning the Pope had prostituted that act of foot washing to serve his own ends, and rather than it being a humbling thing, the Pope actually used it to exalt himself. That's what Peter was talking about. Or not Peter, Luther. That's what Luther was talking about. Now, why do I say that foot washing is not something that you and I should observe? Let me offer to you a few reasons. First, the washing of the disciples' feet is something that is only mentioned in John and not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, that is not an airtight argument in and of itself because how many times does God have to mention something for it to be binding and authoritative? Once, right. If God says something once, that's enough. So that's not an ironclad argument. But I want you to think through the theological implications of this just for a moment. It's only mentioned in John. It's not mentioned in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were the earlier Gospels. Now I ask you this question. If Matthew, Mark, and Luke expected that this foot washing ceremony would be part of the regular practice of the church, they had no way of knowing what John would include in his Gospel. And the the, the suggestion that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, wanting this to be part of the regular church, would keep that out of their gospel record, when John had not yet been written, and wouldn't be for over a decade, suggests that they were, that it is an oversight at best. It is hard to imagine that if they wanted this to be part of the regular practice of the church, that they wouldn't have included it. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are both mentioned by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So if foot washing is on par with those other two ordinances, and something that thus should be part of the regular practice of Christians, we would expect it to be mentioned by Matthew, Mark, or Luke. A second argument, number two, we don't see this modeled in the book of Acts anywhere. We don't see it modeled in the book of Acts anywhere. There is not one word, not one mention of a foot-washing service anywhere in the book of Acts. Now, the book of Acts is the chronicle of the early church from the day of Pentecost, the beginning of the church, all the way through the first 30 years of the church's history up to 61 or 62 A.D., right before Paul was uh, martyred by Nero. In that 30-year period, we have a lot of events that are covered by Luke in the book of Acts, and there's not one mention of foot washing. The book of Acts gives us all kinds of instruction and example of all the things that Christians are typically involved in and are part of the Christian life and part of the Christian worship service, but not one mention of foot washing anywhere in the book of Acts. If it were part of the life of the early church, we might expect Luke to say something like in chapter 2 when he says the church continued in in fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in the apostles' doctrine, and in foot washing. We would expect Luke to talk about that. But Luke doesn't. Not even a hint of it anywhere in the book of Acts. 
The book of Acts does speak of fellowshipping, preaching, teaching, communion, baptism, discipleship, evangelism, church planting, the giving of money, the handling of finances, caring for the poor, helping widows, missions and missionary work, the selection of deacon and elders, instructions to deacons and elders, the structure of church government, handling and resolving conflict, and the exercise of all kinds of spiritual gifts. But not a word about foot washing. So it's not anywhere in the book of Acts. Third, it is not mentioned anywhere in any of the epistles of the New Testament except one place, and I mentioned this last time, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, where Paul says that a widow who is to be put on the financial support rolls of the church, one of the qualifications is that she has washed the saints' feet. That's the only reference to it anywhere else in the New Testament except for John 13. Now, we might expect in all of the instructions given to the church and to Christians, and in some epistles written to pastors, about their responsibility and the behavior and life of the church, like 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, we might expect in at least one of those epistles to hear something about how this practice was to be done, what the meaning of it was, and how and who was to be doing it, and how it was to be carried out. But there's not a word of it in any of the epistles except there in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And there it is a reference, I don't think, even to the literal act of washing feet. But it seems to stand over as sort of a category heading of good deeds that the widows have done for the saints. In other words, it is indicative of the service that they have rendered to other people. And I don't even think Paul's talking about literal foot washing in 1 Timothy chapter 5. So that means that the only reference that is actual literal foot washing in all of the examples of the New Testament and in all of the instructions of the New Testament, the only example of it is in John chapter 13. And the New Testament, the rest of it, is absolutely silent about this practice. If it were part of the regular practice of the church, we would expect to see something somewhere regulating the practice, explaining the practice, or instituting the practice. We have, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 11, almost an entire chapter where Paul gives corrections to the church at Corinth and how they were observing the Lord's Supper. We don't have anything like that in the New Testament about foot washing. Fourth, and this is an argument from the text itself, look at verse 15 again, for I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Let me ask you this question. Of what is Jesus giving us an example? Is it of cleaning people's feet or is it of humility and service? Of what is he giving an example? Jesus does not say, I have left you an example that you would do what I did. He said, I have left you an example that you would do what? As I did. In other words, what Jesus is, what Jesus is driving at is not the act itself, but the heart behind, the attitude behind our acts of service. It is one of condescension and humility and lowliness and thinking of others as more important than ourselves. Number five, like with other cultural practices that are referenced in the New Testament, our job is to find the principle behind the command or the practice and then put that into a modern-day context. Let me give you an example. The Bible says, greet one another with a holy kiss. How many of you did that this morning when you walked in here? Nobody, and you're all thankful that I didn't do that to you. Why is that? Because back then in that culture, it was completely understandable. But in our culture, what does it communicate? Something entirely different, right? It, is wrong. it would be wrong for us to do that, to fulfill that command literally. So what do we do? We come up with the principle behind that command. What is the principle behind the command? The principle behind the command is greet one another affectionately and treat one another with kindness. And so when you walked in this morning and someone shook your hand and said, hey, it's good to see you, how are you doing, or waved an affectionate hello, you fulfilled the demands of that command to greet one another with a holy kiss, even though your lips never touched them. But your hand did. Because the principle is something, and the application of the principle might be entirely different. So what is the principle behind the foot washing? 
The principle stated by Paul in Philippians chapter 2. Consider one another as more important than yourselves. Look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. That's the principle. It is, it is not, have I washed your feet so that you're walking on clean feet? The question is, do I view myself as greater and better than you and look down upon you as if you should be serving me as opposed to me serving you? That's really the question, and that's a hard issue. Because I can hate you and wash your feet, and I can be filled with the greatest amount of pride imaginable and wash your feet. Because it doesn't communicate that in our culture. So what does it look like then if we take the principle and we apply it? This happens a thousand times every week in this body. When you take a Sunday school class or you help set up or you help clean up or you sweep the floor or you prepare meals for little old ladies or you prepare meals for new mothers or you arrange a baby shower, you provide flowers for the stage, you set up communion. And I can't even name all of the things, the thousand things that go on in this body each and every week where one person in an act of service considers somebody else as better than themselves and sacrifices and gives of themselves for the sake of the other person. And it happens between husbands and wives and between children and parents. That's what Paul is driving at. Not are your, or Jesus is driving at. Not are your feet clean, but what is the condition of your heart? So my sixth argument would be that Jesus is driving at the attitude of the heart and not the action itself. So should foot washing be part of the normal practice of the church? I don't believe it should for those following, for those reasons. Now let's move on to verse 17. Verse 17. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. And that word, that phrase, if you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. The if you know these things is is a first-class conditional clause in the Greek, which means that Jesus is not saying, do you know these things? In other words, there's no doubt as to whether or not they know them, because it's actually assuming that what he is stating is true. It would be as if Jesus was saying, since you know these things intellectually, given that you know these things intellectually, you're blessed if you do them. Is there a blessing here for the person who knows these things intellectually? No. The blessing is for whom? For those who do them. It's for those who do them. We have to admit and acknowledge that when we give ourselves to somebody else and serve somebody else, and I think that the more secretive and the more quiet and the more obscure the way that we do it without the fanfare, the greater is the blessing. Do you not yourself realize that every time you give yourself to, for the sake of somebody else and do something for somebody else, that you receive back a great blessing? That you receive back a great blessing? That you are edified and encouraged and you are built up in the most holy faith and you come to a deeper understanding of grace and of humility through that? Is it not true that those who give themselves for the sake of others and serve one another in that way receive a tremendous kind-hearted blessing in their own soul as a result of doing that? And it is a blessing that, quite frankly, those who are saturated with their sinful, self-seeking, and self-aggrandizing ways, and they never get out of their little pride-filled well that they are in, they never understand this blessing. Because those who expect everybody else to serve them, they never understand this blessing, they never experience it. It's the people who serve, they don't get any recognition for it. They're the ones, they understand what this blessing is. So blessed are you if you do them. There can also be, there sometimes is a great, divide between what we know and what we do. And verse 17 mentions that. You know it, but do you do it? There's no blessing if you know it. Every one of these disciples would sit there and say, yes, we are called to humbly serve one another. But that wasn't sufficient. Jesus is saying you're blessed, not if you know it, but if you do it. Do these things, serve one another, love one another like that. That is where the blessing of God is poured out on an individual. And by the way, you can be blessed and not not know it and not realize it and not see it. I hope you understand that. Blessed are those who mourn. 
the one who mourns has the blessing of God upon them, appropriately in its context. The one who mourns in the way in Matthew 5 describes, that person has the blessing of God on them, even though they may not understand it, and they may not see it, and they may not know it. But this blessing describes the, the vantage point from the vantage point of God's eyes. He looks upon the one who is like the Lord Jesus Christ and says, that is the one upon whom my favor rests. That person is blessed. Even if we don't think it, even if we don't feel it, and even if we don't see it, the promise is there that we are the blessed ones. Now, do not let the knowledge of verse 17 corrupt your motives. Don't let it corrupt your motives. We shouldn't, none of us should walk out of here and say, all right, I know it, and I'm going to get God's blessing if I do it. So I'm going to go out and serve somebody so that I can be what? So that I can be blessed, right? No, you don't want to do that. You know why? Because the blessing is not something that we pursue in itself. We don't serve for that reason, in order to get the blessing. The blessing is the byproduct. The blessing is the result of the service that we give. Why is it that we serve then? Because even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And it's back to the point that Jesus is drawing out. If I, your master, have done this, how much more should you do this for one another? So why do we serve? To be blessed? No, we serve because our God, our King, our Master, our Lord did this, and we then, as the lesser, are obligated to do likewise and follow that example. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank You for such a humble Savior who sacrificed Himself on our behalf. We thank You for the blessing of salvation that is in Him and for the reminder from this text of of our own role and our own responsibility before You. May we be impacted by this more than beyond, beyond just today and our understanding here this morning. May you continue to show us the blessing that rests upon those who will humble themselves and give us all a servant's heart. We want to be great in your kingdom only through service and not through our office. May you be honored and be glorified in and through your church as you work in us the grace that was in the Lord Jesus Christ who stooped to serve others and never thought of himself but considered other people as more important than himself. He he is our great example, and we want to model that. We want to imitate that humility and that condescension. And so we pray that you would give us the grace to do that and to think that way. And may we always think of ourselves as slaves, as those who are the lesser and deserve nothing. And we pray that you would help us to think of everything that happens to us and everything that we do in the context of being slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in that slavery that our freedom truly lies. We thank you that we are free in him, free to be righteous, free to be pure, free to hate sin, freedom from sin and self and Satan. And that is the freedom that belongs to the slaves of Christ. And so we gladly take that yoke and pray that we might think of ourselves and behave as slaves for the glory of our Master and our King, Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.